I know many of you are anxious to hear all about our time away and uh, it's coming out in bits and pieces as I talk to different folks, but uh, I just want to let you know that Corey and I are trying to put something together, maybe like a Saturday night deal where we can show some pictures and have some dialogue about our time together and we'll invite the whole church to that, maybe in one of these rooms here or something. So. Um, this is going to be about the Word of God, not about my journeys, uh, but you're going to get so annoyed with all the illustrations from my time away and all this new worship set from my own community, you'll be sick of it anyway. Uh, but, uh, you know, as you know, uh, Corey and I were away for the past six, week, uh, six weeks on sabbatical or uh, ministry renewal leave, and the purpose of the time away was just to kind of get off the treadmill, uh, to get some time and space to rest and to renew and to let God kind of refocus me uh, on my calling and Corey's calling and our family's calling, like how we do this pastor family thing. Um, one of the most important gifts to me during this time away was just the gift of space and silence. And part of that ministry renewal leave, I had the, uh, the privilege of going to the small Scottish island of Iona, which is... A, a, a tiny island, three and a half miles long by a mile and a half wide or so. Um, the sheep outnumber the 120 full-time human residents there. It must be five to one easily. So the point is there's plenty of place for silence. And the one thing I found about silence is that it actually, if you sit in it long enough, it speaks. Now, I'm not going crazy. But if you're in the silence long enough, it speaks. Or rather, maybe more accurately, if you sit silent long enough, you're free from the distractions and longings of your own soul long enough to hear what God might have to say. Silence is scary because sometimes it reveals what's really going on on the inside when you don't have all the facades of busyness to distract you. In silence, I came face to face with my fear and my sin, along with my joy and in my gratitude. And in those moments, you have a choice to make. When that revelation becomes clear, you can figure out ways to get distracted, even on Iona. Or, or you can turn to God in deeper intimacy and prayer. I start the sermon this way because tonight we are going to uh, begin Genesis chapter 34. I'm going to read the whole thing. <laughs> and it's a chapter that I would, uh, I would say speaks loud, loudest because of what it doesn't say. Does it, that doesn't make any sense, does it? I think Genesis chapter 34 speaks loudest not because of what it says but because of what is left unsaid. I think Genesis 34 speaks loudest, not because of who is in it, but for who is absent. It speaks loudest, not because of the godly examples in the story, but because the stark lack of godly examples in the story. Silence speaks. Now before we dive into Genesis 34, I just want to recognize the obvious, that it's been almost a year since we have been in Genesis last. So there's a little bit of catching up to do. Uh, if you're just joining us maybe for the first time or for the first several months, we do this thing September through November where we go back and we, we live in the Old Testament. So for, this is the fourth year in a row that we've been in the book of Genesis. And the whole idea is uh, to remember that we are rooted in a story much larger than ourselves. So we are going to actually, Lord willing, 
work through the rest of Genesis by the time Advent comes in December. All right. Now, the, that's part of the reason I asked Joe to read those scriptures this evening, is to remind us of two very important realities. First of all, that God made people in His image. You are an image bearer of the living God. Turn to someone and say, you are an image bearer of the living God. I'm going to listen. Jim, say it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I know. I know what you're thinking. God must look pretty funny. But I'm serious. You are an image bearer of the living God. And so is every person in tonight's passage. And that means that every person is extremely valuable to God. Second, Genesis chapter 12 tells us that God chooses to rescue the whole world through a family. God chooses to bless Abraham and his descendants in such a way that the world will see Abraham and his family and want to know the God that they serve and want to become part of that family, of that people of God. Now that is just absolutely amazing because for the past three years, almost every time I get to preach on Genesis, it's a story about how somebody in the family of God is screwing up and God is bailing them out. Abraham makes all kinds of mistakes, passes off the covenant to his son Isaac, who makes tons of mistakes. Actually, he's not hardly in the Bible, but he makes a few mistakes before he can get it on to maybe the most defunct, most screwed up of all the patriarchs, also one of the most fun, uh, Jacob. Jacob. Jacob's very name implies that he's a deceiver. He was impulsive and passionate. You know, his character traits seem more fitting to win Donald Trump's The Apprentice than being a patriarch of the people of God. He was arrogant and conniving and self-sufficient. He'd be the perfect American. And like anyone who lives that lifestyle, Jacob found himself at the end of his own rope. See, he had promised God at one point in his journey that if he got... uh, through escape from his uncle Laban, that he would return to a place called Bethel, and that he would settle there and there worship the Lord. But standing between Jacob and Bethel was Jacob's older brother Esau. And on the night before facing Esau, Jacob encounters an angel of God. He wrestles with the angel. And for the first time in his life, Jacob, buff Jacob, who could lift a a stone off off the mouth of a well by himself, he cannot defeat his adversary. His strength and self sufficiency fails him, and the angel touches his hip. And he's weakened physically, but he's made stronger spiritually. The angel says to Jacob, what is your name? And he has to confess in saying, Jacob, I am a deceiver. An angel of the Lord does not condemn Jacob, but says, no, 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 you have a new name now, and it shall be Israel. God fights. Oh, it's a name that's supposed to foster a sense of confidence in Jacob. He's supposed to feel he is a patriarch of the covenant people of God. He has a God who fights for him. Amazing. He's given a new life. Now, that is the scene 
the wrestling with God, the given the new name. That is the scene that comes right before our passage tonight. So if we're getting ready to read Genesis 34 like we are, you've got to expect, okay, Jacob has got to be confident, and he's probably, he and God are probably like this because now he's Israel. He's ready to go, right? All right. Please stand with me as we read the truth. I'm going to start a little bit before, uh, well actually I'll just preface this. Jacob settles not in Bethel, but in a place called Shechem. And now begins Genesis 34. I'm going to read the whole thing. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to visit the daughters of the land. When Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he took her and lay with her by force. Or he defiled her. He was deeply attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the girl and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this young girl for a wife. Now Jacob heard all that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter, but his sons were out tending the livestock in the field. So Jacob kept silent until they came in. Then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. Now the sons of Jacob came in from the field, and when they heard it, the men were grieved, and they were very angry, because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by laying with Jacob's daughter. For such thing ought not to be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her in marriage to him. Intermarry with us. Give us your daughters. To us and take our daughters for yourselves, and thus you shall live with us, and the land shall be open before you. Live and trade and acquire property in it. Shechem also said to her, uh, to her father and to her brothers, If I find favor in your sight, then I will give you whatever you say to me. Ask me whatever so, such a bridal payment and gift, and I will give it according to you as you say to me. But give me this girl in marriage. But Jacob's sons answered Shechem and his father Hamor with deceit, because he had defiled Dinah, their sister. They said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we consent to you, if you will become like us, in that every male of you be circumcised. Then we can give our daughters to you, and we'll take your daughters for ourselves, and we'll live with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us to be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and go. Now, their words seemed reasonable to Hamor and Shechem, Hamor's son. The young man did not delay to do the thing because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. Now, he was more respected than all the household of his father. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city, spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are friendly with us, and therefore let, let them live in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters in marriage and give our daughters to them. Only on this condition will the men consent to live with us, to become one people, that every male among us be circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock and their property and all their animals be ours? Only let us consent to them that they will live with us. And all who went out of the gate of the city listened to Homor and to his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of the city. 
Now it came about on the third day when they were in pain that two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came upon the city unawares and killed every male. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the edge of the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and went forth. Jacob's sons came upon the slain and looted the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds and their donkeys and that which was in the city and that which was in the field. And they captured and looted all their wealth and all their little ones and their wives, even all that was in their houses. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You've brought trouble on me by making me odious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And my men, being few in number, they will gather together against me and attack me, and I will be destroyed, I and my household. But they said, should they treat our sister as a harlot? Lord, we need your help with this one, as we do every week with your amazing word. In particular, because this story is just so strange. Um, Lord, I thank you that you speak even through the strange ones sometimes more. And I pray by the power of your spirit that you would reveal more than information this evening. That you would change our hearts. We stand on the promise that your word does not come back void. Uh, You send it out and we proclaim it. And we ask you to do something amazing in our hearts with it. Amen. You may be seated. <laughs> I mean, let's be honest. Like, first of all, this is why, again, I'm committed to expository preaching. Because I would never, like, hey, coming back from leave, maybe my first sermon should be Genesis 34. I, I mean, it's kind of depressing, isn't it? Uh, it makes you kind of wonder why it's in the Bible in the first place. There's got to be all kinds of other stories you could put in there. The Bible's pretty long without that chapter. Why do we need that one? Uh, How does this story bring anything good? And, you know, how does it speak for us today? Well, let's begin by working through some of the major plot lines and seeing what's missing. If you remember, in the beginning of the message, I'm asking us to pay attention to the silences, to the lapses, more to what's not there than what is there. First of all, We get this vague introduction that tells us that Dinah, Jacob's daughter, through his wife Leah, went out to see or to visit the daughters of the land. That's, you know, the Hivite girls. Uh, While she's out and about doing whatever she's doing, because the narrator doesn't tell us, Shechem, this prince, sees her, takes her, and lies with her, which if you... If you're thinking Genesis chapter 6 with those Nephilim dudes that we don't know really what they are, but they see the daughters of men, they take the daughters of men, and they lay with the daughters of men, like, that's an evil scene. It should trip our brains that something not good is going down. So Shechem takes her and humiliates her or defiles her. Some translations say uh, rapes her. We don't know for sure because it is very ambiguous. Now, after this intimate encounter with Dinah, Shechem apparently loves her, which doesn't make much sense in our world. Um, And he asks his father, Hamor, to broker a deal to marry her. Let's pause for a minute and read between the lines. First of all, there's just a nagging passivity, a silence from Jacob himself. He is the promise bearer of the living God. The patriarch of the people of God. 
God is going to bless him to bless the whole world. Jacob promised God that he would go to Bethel and camp out there and set up an altar and worship him. We know from later on that he actually sets up here outside of Shechem for 10 years. He sets his people, the promise bearers of God, right next to a pagan uh, settlement of the Hivites. So Jacob, in making this foolish decision, puts his family and the covenant in jeopardy. Second, what is Dinah doing mingling unchaperoned with the, with the daughters of the Hivites? In the ancient Near East, if you're an unmarried but marriageable age, you do not go out unchaperoned. You always have a male from your family because your honor was everything. And so you had to have male witnesses there that would prove that your honor is intact. Why on earth was the supervision so lax that Dinah is out cavorting by herself? Jacob's passivity and not watching over his daughter has put her in a precarious situation where she encounters Shechem and she is either greatly seduced or she is outright raped. Again, the passage is unclear. Some think that Jacob was such a failure in making good marriages for his kids and setting them up that Dinah just got frustrated and went out to go play the field by herself and something bad happens to her. Maybe the main reason we don't know is because we have no idea what Dinah thinks or feels. You know, it's important to read this, ladies, I know you'll agree, from a woman's perspective. Most of the Bible scholars out there are men for some reason or another. We need to change that, ladies. Uh, but a, a good feminist perspective? What's going on with Dinah? How come there's a lapse on what she's thinking? What's going through her mind and her emotions? In fact, throughout this whole story, Dinah, who is an image bearer of the living God we learned before the fall, right? Genesis chapter 1, 26 and 27, God made men and women in his image. She is deeply precious and valuable to God. She's treated like property by her father, by her brothers, and certainly by these Hivites, Shechem and Hamor. She has no voice in the story, which makes the evil of this encounter even louder. So we learn that Jacob finds out about Dinah and Shechem, and you might expect him to be angry. I'm just saying as a dad of three daughters, yeah, he should have been wielding a big stick at this point and gone in to clean some house. He should have been angry, but instead he keeps silent. He's passive. He's ineffective. And when Dinah's brothers find out, they are furious. But before you go cheering on the brothers, let's just take a moment and figure out why they're furious. They are furious because their sister Dinah has been defiled. She's been with a man out of wedlock, and they are angry about this defilement for two specific reasons. One, in the ancient Near East, grooms would have to pay a bride price to marry a woman. They would pay the family of the bride to marry her. And the higher the honor of the family of the bride, the higher the bride price. It's pretty high with Jacob, who you know, is an image bearer, the leader of a whole people. Okay, But if the bride was defiled, ceremonially unclean, slept with the guy out of wedlock, her bride price would go way down. The brothers seem to be obsessed with this. They're fearful that this action has made their sister less valuable. 
It's economics. Secondly, family honor was all connected. You know, kind of like we all have a black sheep in our family, or maybe you are the black sheep in your family. I know I've been that at times. Um, you, you can talk about your bro or your sister, that mom or dad or that, or that old crazy uncle. Um, and it, it's a little embarrassing, but it doesn't like directly reflect on you, right? In this world, it's different. Everybody who has the same family name is connected. So what your brother does directly uh, influences your honor and shame credit, what your sister does, what your wife does. And so they are deeply offended that Dinah's honor was defiled and so that their honor has been defiled. Notice what silence reveals yet again. Where's their care for their sister? Where is their outrage at her mistreatment? In fact, what we learn later on, way back in, way up in chapter 20, verse 26, is that Dinah has been living with them the whole time, with Shechem and Hamor. You know, if I were the brothers or the dad, I would be like, give me my daughter back right now. Until the deal is on, she's coming back home. But they're just, they're just worried about their honor and economics. She's, she's living with Shechem at this time. So Hamor, Shechem's father, comes to Jacob to broker a marriage between Dinah and Shechem. And again, let's notice what has not uh, been said. First of all, think of how Abram and Isaac went to great lengths to make sure that their sons and their daughters were married off to the right people. They didn't want the, the, the people of the promise to intermarry uh, with, with the pagan tribes. Here, Jacob seems like he'd care less. They would be turning over in their graves that they could see how Jacob is leading his family. The promise of God to Abraham meant that the nations would become one by being absorbed into Israel, by becoming worshippers of Israel's God. But this is exactly, this proposal by Shechem and Hamor is the complete opposite. At this point in history, the Hivites far outnumber the Israelites. The way that Shechem and Hamor are talking about this deal is, we'll intermarry and then we'll get all their stuff. The dominant people are the Hivites in this story. So if Jacob allows this marriage, he's basically diluting this covenant people and they'll just intermarry and become one with the Hivites. And even worse, I think, is Jacob's silence. His indifference is almost worse than making a bad decision. In fact, it just goes to show that whenever you're faced with a choice and you don't make a decision, you make a decision. By not taking responsibility for his family, Jacob left this huge vacuum in leadership. And who fills it? Simeon and Levi, the brothers of Dinah. And the Bible tells us they were full of deceit. The two brothers claim that for religious reasons, they want the Hivite men to be circumcised, which, by the way, is a sign of entrance into the covenant people of God. It is one of the most sacred symbols that they had at this time. And they are going to use that sacred symbol to physically weaken people so then they can go kill them. And ironically, Simeon and Levi take this revenge on the Hivites for defiling their sister when they themselves are defiling one of the most sacred uh, symbols that God had given them. So the Hivites agree to circumcision on the third day when they're weak. You know there's a reason they circumcise boys at like eight days old because there's a reason why kids get new teeth and adults don't because we're too wimpy. Uh, let's just say these guys were really sore by day three. All right, and Without antibiotics, I'm just saying some of the stuff 
it was probably very painful. And so um, the, the brothers come in with the sword and they kill him. I mean, it's way disproportionate. And they don't stop at the killing, but then they take the, the, the children and the wives and the livestock and they, they pillage the place. And this dreadful story ends with Jacob speaking out against the actions of Simeon and Levi. And you're thinking, finally, this guy, this dad is going to lead. But he doesn't even condemn them for slaughtering a people or pillaging a city. Instead of calling them out for turning the sign of blessing into a curse, he doesn't call them out for their lack of integrity and breaking a contract. But Jacob is angry because they've brought dishonor on his name and put him out of favor with the neighboring Canaanites. Israel, the one who fought with God, the one who was given a new name, is back to his old ways of fearfulness, cowardice. The brothers fire back that they're merely protecting their family's honor. And that's where the story ends. No one comes out of the story looking good. No one has the moral high ground. There are no great examples of faith here. Only silence where there should have been wise words. Only inaction or overreaction where there could have been wise and creative action, only self-preservation and vengefulness, where there could have been courage and justice and forgiveness. Well, that's it. No, I'm just kidding. I mean, wouldn't that just be horrible? Like, if that's, oh, great, I'm glad that's in the Bible. Is there anything worth talking about here? Or is this just a case of what not to do in Bible class? As I said earlier, I really do think that the heart of the story, at least for me, uh, is in the silence. It's, it's in what is not said, and it's in what is not done, and it's in who is absent. And that is the main point. This story is missing God. You recognize he's not in the story. Jacob, who started out self-sufficient in his own physical prowess, in his own mental cunning. He met his match when he wrestled God. But from that match, he emerged with a limp and a new name. This is the same man who earlier on was sleeping in the wilderness, head on a stone, all depressed, and God opened up heaven to him and revealed his glory to him. You would think that Jacob had learned to trust God after all of this, but instead... Jacob, who used to be physically and mentally self-sufficient, I think he became spiritually self-sufficient. He had the experiences of God. He came from the right lineage, the people of God. He had the covenant of God. He is a patriarch. He even had a mission of God to fulfill. But somewhere along the line, Jacob became a functional atheist. He had all the religious trappings, the right family. He knew the right words to say. He had revelation from God. But somewhere along the way, he left the God out of his decisions, out of his life. Functional 
atheism. And I wonder, I don't have to wonder with me, I know it's true of me from time to time. But I wonder if you have considered this, how many of us have had a history with God showing up in our lives in amazing ways, maybe providing for us in tough times, revealing himself when we were so desperately needy, and how many of us go through life saying we trust God, but in reality we barely acknowledge his existence when making regular decisions, when going about our work, when raising our families, when investing our finances, when throwing our weight around in the way that we cast our political votes and voice opinions. Passage, if anything, this passage makes me ponder the place of God in my life. Am I living as though Jesus were really my king? Or is he an app running in the background? Sorry, that was really lame. But you know, you, know, you have those apps running in the background and they're just, you don't know what they're doing. Yeah. You just kind of go on autopilot. Maybe we think about him in church. Or when those few times are when we get a chance to to pray or to read our Bible. But is he really part of your day to day? Is he really king? I'm convinced that Jacob and his children make such unwise and unloving decisions because they were living without dependence on God. Why do I think this? <laughs> because that's exactly how I behave when I neglect my relationship with God. It's how the world acts when it organizes itself around anything but God. We end up either acting like Jacob, passive, powerless, fearful, indifferent, apathetic, or we end up acting like Levi and Simeon, selfish and deceitful and impulsive in anger, revengeful and violent. Without the goodness of God and the power of His Spirit running through my life, I am a sinner. Oh, I'm always a sinner, but I'm a sinner without any hope of thinking godly thoughts or doing what is best. I need the living God's presence and guidance and forgiveness and newness of life. I need His courage and strength not to assert my strength in ways that run over people. I need his courage and strength to act when he's calling me to act in hard times. While on my leave uh, in the silence of Iona, I was confronted with some of my functional atheism. Uh, I was convicted, for example, on how uh, I overwork in my own strength rather than take the appropriate time and space to, uh, to connect with God. You know, as a pastor, this might sound crazy, but I actually have thought, I don't have time to pray because I have this and this and this to do. Isn't that insane? And part of the joy of being off that treadmill is I've got nothing else to do but pray. 
Uh, and uh, in coming back, I'll just share with you so you can ask me about it and hold me accountable. Uh, I've been prayer walking uh, the neighborhood every day for at least an hour a day. So I get about three miles in a day, so it's a little exercise too. Um, but I pray for these neighbors of ours. I pray for you. Uh, I've been thinking differently about what my parish means. It means this neighborhood and it means everyone who calls this church their home. So on those walks, sometimes I'll be praying for you. I used to feel kind of ashamed about that. Like you would think that I'm not working hard if I don't have my calendar filled up and I'm producing something. But I don't care what you think anymore. (laughs) Because I know that my work, in part, is to be praying. Your work, in part, is to be praying too. You are a priest of the living God. I've been experiencing new life in prayer. I encourage you yourself to ask yourself, is the living God the God of your life? Is He your real source for strength and wisdom and courage? St. Matthew the Poor writes, Let him who does not pray expect nothing whatsoever from God. Neither salvation, nor renewal, nor direction, nor grace. Rather, he is consigned to the whims and fancy of his own mind, the will of his own ego, and the direction of his own thinking. That's frightening to me because I know the weakness of my mind. As for his relationship with Christ, it remains only superficial and outward. It has no power to change or amend anything. If you have been feeling like you're spinning your wheels, you've been powerless to change, like you're not getting any more like Jesus, I just nudge you with the question, have you been abiding in the vine through prayer? Or are we living as functional atheists? Jacob received a new name, but failed to be transformed into that new name when he failed to remain in God in prayer. Hear the good news of Jesus. You can't have a new name, a new identity. The sins of the past do not have to define you. You are not your failure. You are a child of the living God. You are made in his image. You were made to experience the fullness of Jesus. He became a person with skin, flesh and bone to rescue us. He died on a cross in that very real body to save us from sin and death. He rose from the grave as a foretaste of the glory we can have in him. Do you want this new life in Jesus? Whether you want it for the first time or you recognize you've lost it along the way, I encourage you to prayer, uh, pray a prayer of confession and of repentance with me. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we confess that oftentimes we have called you Lord and yet failed to obey the Father. We confess that our... To our modern lives, your ways seem quaint, outdated, and impractical. 
We say with our mouths that we follow a crucified Savior, and yet we are afraid to die to the most trivial shreds of pride we think we have. We fail to pray, and we wonder why our lives have no power. We impulsively make decisions without your input or the counsel of the church, and wonder why do we keep digging ourselves deeper in debt and sin and discouragement. Jesus, we confess that knowing these things doesn't necessarily mean we want to change or could change if we wanted to. We're utterly hopeless without you. And how great you are. How fathomless your mercies and unsearchable your grace. So we pray for grace in prayer. We are stubborn and dull. Draw us to yourself, we beg you. May your word and your presence truly be sweeter than honeycomb to our senses. Fill us with your God life. How our souls pant for you like the deer for water brooks.